Now, this is our final week of the wholeness series, and you are going to want to get your notebooks out for this. So if you've got your notebooks with you, if you've got your Bible with you, as you know, we've been going through the whole, um, going through the wholeness series. We've done relational, emotional, and this is, a f- no, we're doing emotional today. This is the one we're coming into today. And we are so, so blessed to have our good friend, Dr. Roger Bretherton. When Dan said he's a real life doctor, if there's anything wrong with you, don't go and ask him to look at this or what's this lump or what's this or what's my chances of getting coronavirus. He's not that kind of doctor. He will explain to you maybe what kind of doctor he is, but he is Senior Lecturer in Psychology at the University of Lincoln. He is head of many things. Is it the Christian Association of Psychologists or Counselors? Christians in Psychology, so he's head of that. So we have got a man who really lives out loving God with all of his intelligence, all of his heart, all of his soul, and we are so blessed to have him with us this morning. So I'd love you to really encourage him. You know, the preacher always preaches better when they're getting something back from who they're preaching to. So let's really engage with the gold that he's going to bring to us and give him a massive warm welcome. Roger, it's so good to have you with us. You are so welcome to be here. Can I just pray for you quickly before you start? Jesus, I thank you for Roger. I thank you that you knitted him together, and I thank you that you're still knitting him together, and I thank you that he's open to you. Thank you, God, that he loves you with his intelligence, with his mind, um, with his spirit, with his heart, and we bless him today, and I pray, God, that he'd have a fresh revelation of you even as he speaks, a revelation of your goodness and your kindness and your deep father heart towards him. So may he feel really at home, and may this be a refreshing um, experience for him. We pray for him and bless him in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Joe. Hello, good morning. Yes, I'm definitely still being knitted together, as Joe said. That's definitely going on. Um, one, of the thing, one of the nice things about doing a talk like this on emotional wholeness is there's no pressure on me to be perfect or present myself as kind of psychologically got it all together. Um, I have to say, I, I've trained as a clinical psychologist, and um, I've met so many clinical psychologists who have every problem in the book. You know, you could diagnose them with everything. And then you stick them in the room and helping someone and all that pain in them somehow turns into healing towards someone else. And I think it's important that we kind of remember that we're all sort of wounded and that doesn't stop us from healing. So it's nice to be here my first time um, at this location, uh, looking around, many kind of old friends that I recognize, many new friends I've met this morning, lots of people I don't recognize, so it's good to see you too. And um, the, the, this one, one of the kind of differences between Alive Lincoln and Alive North Highcombe is that at Alive Lincoln, you get 40 minutes to talk, and here you get 30. <laughs> I, and my, my kind of feeling is that, um, even though I'm sure you'd forgive me if I overran by 10 minutes, that being a good guest is to stick to the house rules. You don't overstay, you're welcome. So what that means is I've, I've got a bit of a dilemma, um, because one of the rules of communication is this. For about the first 10 minutes, I'm just warming you up. I am the message, you know, so I'm just trying to make sure you like me, you're on board, you're responding, and then we can get into some stuff. So we, we're just going to have to cut all that bit out, I'm afraid. Um, th- thanks, 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 Dan, that's nice. Dan, Dan's responding already, that's great. Um, and, and so the way, I, the way I started when I was doing it um, at Lincoln is I had this kind of quite long, funny story that, to be honest, was completely irrelevant to ev- anything I said later on. So I thought, we'll skip that bit, but what would help me is, could we just pretend that I've done that bit? So, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to count to three, and after three, 
I'd just like you to laugh a little bit. So it's not loads, like you don't go mad. It's not the funniest thing you've ever heard. It's just kind of like, yeah, that was kind of a nice bit of gentle humor there. And then that makes me feel warm. And then we can just get straight into it. Okay, so got that? Okay, so one, two, three. Yeah, I know, I know. It's great, great story, wasn't it? Anyway, so do you remember the Gospels? four gospels in in the bible and um they're all stories of jesus they're basically the life story of jesus and they all take on a slightly different genre so you read matthew's gospel it's written by an accountant so it reads like a documentary here are the speeches of jesus that's the way it works and then you get to luke's gospel and um it's a musical everybody's breaking out into song it's a little bit irritating you want to get on with the story but mary's singing and everybody's singing all the way through Uh, angels all that kind of stuff Then you get to John's Gospel, and um, it's kind of like a a foreign language movie with a kind of deep voiceover. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. I I don't need to say that accent's on my thing, do I really? But, you know, there you go. And it's that kind of thing. Mark's Gospel is the action gospel. It's like an action movie. It's just, here's what Jesus did. Mark's favorite word 35 times in the gospel is immediately, 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 immediately. Jesus did this, then this, then this, then this. And there's a story in the 10th chapter of Mark where um, uh, people start bringing their children, their kids, to Jesus. And um, the, the disciples see this going on and they think, well, you know, kids are a bit inconvenient, they're a bit messy, um, they kinda, they're not particularly significant, they don't do things right, you want them to give a box of chocolates, they just give one. We don't want that, we don't want that from our kids. So they think... <laughs> and dropped a bottle of wine too. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> um, and so the disciples think we better keep them away from Jesus. Let, let's just hold them off. He's a great man, great speaker. We don't want him to be bothered with this kind of stuff. Um, and Jesus tells them off. So in Mark chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus says, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them, isn't this a beautiful verse? And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Jesus said, these kids, they matter to me. They're essential to me. And on one level, it is a story about kids. It's a story about how any community that wants to live and thrive and do well has to treasure and prize its children. World Health Organization um, a few years ago wrote a report, and in the end of their report, they said, if every country in the world would invest the majority of their money in the first five years of life, many of the social problems we have in our communities would disappear. Basically saying that that's any community worth its salt prizes its kids. But it's also a story about adults. It tells us about the kind of relationship Jesus would like to form with the parts of us that seem childish or seem insignificant or come across as inconvenient. Those kind of areas of our life that sometimes we feel ashamed of or we want to hide them, Jesus would like to draw close to. The things that we think are our miseries, he would like to turn into our ministry. The bits we would like to ignore, he would like to bring grace and attention to. And if we're really honest, because we're talking about emotions today, our emotions aren't always convenient to us. 
They're not always great. Have you ever noticed how whenever you stretch out to do something good, very often you are afflicted by the opposite emotion somewhere in you. You go, I'm going to care for people, and then you notice your resentment. I'm going to be grateful, and you notice your entitlement. I'm going to speak the gospel and be clear, and suddenly your self-righteousness emerges. Our emotions aren't always that convenient. And I've even heard some Christians say our emotions are what we need to get over to be Christians. Emotions matter bod all in the kingdom of God. So I heard someone preach that once. Sometimes we think to be a good person, to be a good Christian, is to ignore our emotions. But that's why I'm really delighted today that as part of this series um, on wholeness, that we're talking about emotional wholeness. Because it speaks of integrity. It speaks of truthfulness, of authenticity about who we are and how we bring everything that we are to God. And the thing to say about emotions is there aren't really any good or bad emotions. We tend to think these are the good ones, those are the bad ones. All your emotions are trying to do something for you. They, they're trying to say something. They, they have a purpose on some level. And we do tend to divide them into positive and negative emotions. And the reason we divide them like that is because negative emotions, whether it's guilt or anger, fear, sadness, come with very strong what psychologists call action tendencies. They want to do something immediately. Fear wants to run away. Anger wants to fight. Shame wants to hide. Sadness wants to rest and collapse. They're all trying to do something. And that's why sometimes you'll find in some workplaces, for example, that it's tempting for managers to manage people through their negative emotions because you get very, very reliable responses. Just want people to do as they're told. Negative emotions will do that. Won't build trust. Won't build good community. Won't lead to a good place to work. But if you just want people to do as they're told, it's a great way of creating slaves. Positive emotions, on the other hand, don't have those kind of action tendencies attached. So if you feel serene, or you feel joyful, or you feel um, uh, interested, curious, um, if you feel grateful, if you feel hopeful, hopefulness comes in your heart, it's really difficult to know what you're supposed to do with them. You're kind of not, not quite sure what to do. And when psychologists study those things, they say what those positive emotions do for us, actually, is that firstly, they broaden our awareness. So when you're in positive emotion, you see things you haven't seen before. You're aware of stuff. When you love people, when you're in a state of love, you start to see things in them you hadn't seen before that. You start to see good things around you you hadn't noticed before. So they broaden our awareness, but they also build our resilience. So positive emotions, a moment of gratitude, a moment of love, uh, a moment of curiosity, have the ability sometimes to undo some of the pains and the difficulties of the day that we've seen. They begin to lift us into a different place. And so today, what, what I'd like to talk about is how we begin to use some of those positive practices to help us come to a place of emotional wholeness. I'm really aware that in a fairly short talk like this, so I talk about this kind of stuff for 24 hours of lectures at the university. It wouldn't bless you, I don't think, if we did all that right now. Um, but I do talk about it for quite a long time, so I'm always aware that when I talk about things in this brief way, there's a chance that something won't land well, that I might say the wrong thing. Um, so what I'd like you to do is rather than look at it as here's a set of rules Roger's told us to do this morning, view it as a menu. There'll be some things in here that you go, oh, yeah, that's the one for me. Pick that up, take it home, use that. Don't feel, you know, some of them will miss you, some of them aren't for you. If there's anything that hurts you or you think that just feels oppressive, ditch it, forget about it, move on. 
Because the biggest difficulty we have in our culture really is this, is that those negative emotions that are designed for short-term relief, they're designed to do something quickly. So if a truck's coming towards you and the anxiety hits you, it's designed to get you out of the way as fast as you possibly can. It's not designed for you to be joyfully curious about the color of the truck driver's eyes. That's not that moment. They're like, get out of the way, fast. And the problem with our culture at the moment is that many of us are living in negative emotions designed for short-term action over the long term. So we don't fight tigers in the street, although admittedly there were horses, about 40 of them running down Burton Road this morning, but no, no one was fighting them. We just called the police. Um, and um, we, we, don't, you know, we don't fight wild animals and tigers and threats to our survival quite in the same way, but our issues are presentations and deadlines and goals that we've been set and social pressure to do things. So we end up kind of living under all these kind of difficult things for a period of time that they're not designed to cope with. And that's one of the reasons why it's so hard for us to get on. So I want to talk about four practices for emotional wholeness that begin to draw on some of those positive emotions. Now, when you read Paul the Apostle, he's really clear that firstly, we should focus on those good things, and secondly, that we should practice them. So in uh, the fourth chapter of Philippians, he writes, this is his uh, epistle of joy. He's writing it full of joy. He's writing it from prison, ironically. And in chapter four, he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Fix your eyes on this stuff, on the good things. Be aware of those good things around you. And that's great, isn't it? Yeah, good good bit of positive thinking. Thank you, Paul. It's great. The bit we don't read quite so often is the next verse where he starts to talk about himself. So he says, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So he's saying, don't think about these things as just kind of abstract stuff out there. They're nice to think about. Isn't that lovely? He says, you've seen them in me, probably seeing them in the people around you who follow Jesus. Who do you know who's full of peace? Who do you know who's full of fairness? Who do you know who's full of love? Who do you know who's deeply grateful? Who do you know who lives their life in great hope? Copy them. Imitate them. Look at them. And he says, and practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. In other words, it's our practices that bring us peace. Uh, it's a famous piece of psychology research where it says awareness of good things in us gives us a well-being boost for about seven days. Woo! And then it goes. Um, it's kind of like you go to a good church service, you enjoy it, you feel great. Next week you need another one because you need to be reminded again. Um, weirdly, psychologists call that an inert condition. So in other words, they're saying that doesn't really do very much for us. But they say, if you do the same thing, be aware of good things and then practice them. Work out how to practice them day by day by day. People who do that a month later, three months later, six months later, are still showing the same benefits. It's almost like there's something about practicing that means we come again and again and again and again and again to those good things so that they begin to live and dwell within us in a deep way. So we're going to talk about four ways in which we as a community can practice emotional wholeness. Just pick one. Pick, pick whatever works for you. The four are gratitude, hope, endurance, and kindness. So gratitude. 
So emotional wholeness means appreciating what we have. Emotional wholeness means appreciating what we have. So sometimes we think that we're going to get better or things will get better by hating the way things are. I can't stand the way things are. They need to be different. That that's the way ahead. That's the way things improve. That, that we, we will get better by thinking about what we don't have and trying to get hold of those kind of things. Advertising works on that basis. You know that basically all advertising really convinces you that you're a complete loser if you don't eat this cereal, use this power drill, go to this place as a restaurant. It's basically what it's trying to say. Um, so it, it basically makes us feel insecure and then offers us a solution. Gerald Coates once put it this way. He said, advertising strips you of your dignity and sells it back to you at the price of a product. Now that's the kind of idea. You don't have this. This is what you need. But interestingly, what that does is it creates something in us that psychologists call the hedonic treadmill. And the hedonic treadmill is basically this. It's the idea that the things you think will make you happy won't make you as happy as you think they're going to make you, and the happiness won't last as long as you think it's going to. When you look at people, for example, who've won the lottery, generally speaking, maybe after a little boost in happiness for a while, after two years, they are back to exactly the same level of well-being, baseline happiness they had before they won. It doesn't really make that much difference to us. And the problem with the hedonic treadmill, it means that when we've got the partner we wanted, we then want the promotion, and we then want the bigger house, and then we want the slightly better car, and then we want the shoes, and on and on and on and on, and it's never really satisfied. It's kind of consumerism in action. And interestingly, when you look biblically, the kind of biblical emphasis is really the opposite of that. When you look at gratitude and thankfulness in the Bible, it really has this idea of what we are thankful for will multiply. We don't, you know, yeah, we do need to get things in life to, to kind of help us out, but actually being grateful for what we have is the way to live with and enjoy what we already have. So there's one story, there's only one story that appears in all four of those Gospels that I talked about a moment ago. It's the feeding of the 5,000. And in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus takes a small number of loaves and fish and he feeds an entire multitude of people. The interesting thing, at no point does he go, oh, dear God, please give me more loaves and fish. He blesses them. He says, thank you, God. And suddenly they go all the way around to everybody. Same thing um, in the Last Supper. Um, in the Last Supper, the night before Jesus dies, he breaks breaks bread and shares wine. This is my blood. This is my body. And what he does as he breaks the bread is he thanks God. That's why we call it the Eucharist, because the word in the Greek is Eucharistia. Breaks the bread means thankfulness. And as he distributes it around, he's effectively saying, as I've thanked God for this, there will be enough for everyone. My body and my blood will go everywhere. It will never run out. It will never be exhausted. There will always be enough for you, for me, for whoever comes to him. And then if you read Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, in all his kind of, all his sort of uh, letters that he writes loads, about a third of the New Testament is written by Paul. Um, and the interesting thing about Paul is, I don't know if you noticed, that sometimes he gets a bit of a bad press, that people sort of view Jesus as kind of the nice sort of hippie character. He's like God's son who went off to university and came back with loads of kind of liberal, cool ideas about, hey guys, should we just love people? Wouldn't that be great? And then Paul is like this kind of homophobic, mealy-mouthed, you know, prejudiced kind of dude. He's not, not really very nice. 
that actually you can't understand Paul unless you begin to realize that his letters are packed full of gratitude and thankfulness. Thankfulness, thankfulness, thank. The only one that doesn't begin with thanks is the letter to the Galatians, and that's because he's just so annoyed with them. Just gets straight in. You foolish Galatians, that's how it begins. You're like, bit different. But, but all the others are like, thankful, 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 thankful. He thanks, thanks God for other people. He thanks God for what he's done. Even thanks God for his own ministry. Thank you for the privilege of me having the opportunity to do what I'm doing. 53 times in Paul's epistles, he says thank you. Thank you in all kinds of different ways. Even sometimes as he's writing, just like has a live moment of gratitude. Where he says, thanks for this. You know, he's just like he throws it in as he's going along. And you don't understand him unless you get that, unless you get that side of things. Because when you look at every other letter in the New Testament, whether it's Peter, James, Jude, John, Hebrews, all those kind of things, zero occurrences of gratitude. Not once. doesn't happen once. Paul, 53. Other epistles, zero. Be a great rugby score for Six Nations, that, wouldn't it? 53-0. Thank you. But you've got to see that that was central to Paul's understanding of grace was we hold on to the goodness that God has given us when we're grateful, when we're thankful. Um, and so this has become a really kind of central idea in psychological well-being research. So the research on gratitude started about 20 years ago or so. There was a guy called Bob Emmons who actually is a, is a Christian, um, but he's also a brilliant social psychologist. And he was allocated as this team of people, you have to go and study gratitude. Didn't want to do it. He actually wanted to study humility, but he was humble, so he took gratitude because that's what he'd been given. So he, he went off and he thought, what will I do? I know, I'll go back to my university in California and I'll get my students just writing down three things they're grateful for each day. Um, and then we'll just see what it does. And he came up with these absolutely astonishing results. Their physical well-being went up, their negative emotion went down, their positive emotion went up, their general sense of being satisfied with life increased. Um, some of them were doing more physical exercise as a result, visiting the doctor less, on and on and on. All these just absolutely incredible results after three weeks. It's like absolutely stunning. And that research has been repeated and repeated in all kinds of different ways since then. So there's probably hundreds and hundreds of pieces of research like that. But that's one of the ways we can hold on to gratitude is just think. three. You know, What, what three things blessed you today? Who did what? What, what? what were you glad for? Another way of practicing gratitude would be to say, um, who is there in your life who really, really contributed to you and helped you at a hard time who you've never got around to thanking? Call it the gratitude visit. Um, so it's like, go, go and find them, write them a letter. Some, some versions of, uh, of the exercise have you laminating the letter and reading it to them in their living room. Um, you have to be careful. You've got to choose the right person to do that with. I think it can go wrong. Um, but nevertheless, people who do that will say up to three months later, they're still living in the benefit of it, the benefit of having said thank you to that teacher, that pastor, that youth leader, that good friend who stood by them or was with them in, in the pain of a moment. And the interesting thing about gratitude is it's not just for the days when things go well. So it's not just for those moments where everything's fantastic and we're skipping through the days as singing, I'm so happy. It's also quite important for the, the hard times of life as well. Um, a few years back, uh, my wife, Marie Claire, her, her brother, Niall, um, died of cancer. Um, it was very, very sudden. We had about a year between diagnosis and, and his death. 
Um, he, he got married um, two months early, knowing that if he left his marriage a bit later, they'd never um, get married. And um, she's Irish, family are Irish, so that means when he was in the hospital for the sort of final round of everything, um, there were about a thousand members of the family sat in the lobby, taking it in terms, going in to spend time with him. And uh, we, we had been through this with other people before. We had other friends who, who died of cancer, and we knew that towards the end, probably what would happen, whether it was the condition or whether it was the drugs or whatever it was, that probably we'd come to a point where he could no longer communicate with us, but he might still be able to hear what we said to him. So Marie Claire quite wisely said, Niall, when we get to that point, what would you like us to do? You won't be able to tell us, but we could do something. He said, what I'd like you to do at that point is, I'd like you just to tell me the good things about me that you've appreciated, you know, what, what, what I've meant to you. So uh, Mary Claire goes around her family with a big A4 pad of paper, and they're all writing down all the things that, um, you know, have, uh, that they've liked about him, loved about him, the things they've appreciated. And, um, and then eventually, of course, the inevitable happens. He sort of lapses into this coma, which really means the end is coming. And uh, Marie Claire thinks this is the moment, and she sits by his bed, and she starts to read through all the things that she's written down. Um, your foolhardy driving your strange obsession with renovating tractors, your, your ability to hold down the most boring job in the world at, at a microchip factory, um, you know, your absolutely chronically bad sense of humor. And at the end, she just read hers, and she said, Niall, what I've learned from you is that nothing is so old, damaged, or broken that it cannot be mended, renewed, or reused. Nothing is so old, damaged, or broken that it cannot be mended, renewed, or reused. And literally the moment she spoke those words, he took a deep breath in and she intuitively knew this was it, he was going, so she ran down the corridor to get his wife so she could be with him for the last moment. And these are hard moments, but when we're grateful for it, gratitude has this ability to take, it basically take the best bits of our past and take them with us into the future. Even in moments of grief, of trauma, of loss, we're still saying there were things still here that were good and that I want to hold on and I want to take with us. You know, we always take our past into our future. Gratitude lets us take the best bits with us as we go. I, um, last year in May, my, my dad died very, very suddenly out of nowhere, heart attack in his sleep. My mum said he wasn't feeling well, went back to sleep. My mum went off to church. When she came back, he, he was gone. Um, I was actually speaking in a church in Lincoln at the bridge at the time, and my wife appeared at the back and said, it's your dad. You know, so it was quite a shock. But what I found that's most interesting about that kind of situation for me is while he was alive, I constantly kind of viewed how I was different from him. He's like that, and I'm like this. And then as a result of going through the funeral, meeting all his old friends again, you know, beginning to reflect on who he was and what he gave me, I, I came to realize, actually, I'm much more like my dad than I ever wanted to admit. And it's almost like being grateful for those things means that they then become yours. Um, my dad was a Christian, so I do believe one day I'm going to see him again. But I also think that gratitude allows me somehow to carry a piece of him with me right now. Because I'm like, oh, yeah, there's, there's Terry again doing his thing. That's what's going on. So gratitude. Gratitude um, allows us to carry the best bits into our future. Let's do the other three a bit quicker than that. So hope. 
Emotional wholeness means believing in a better future. Emotional wholeness means believing in a better future. If hope has a message, the message of hope is this. It's that you can get there from here. Do you ever have one of those moments where your hope dies and you wonder, can I really, you know, have I really got myself stuck again? Am I really this person? Am I doing well enough? Have I got far enough? Hope says, no, you can get there from here. And when the Apostle Paul, again, in his epistles writing to the Colossians, thinks about this, he talks about how Jesus is our hope. He says kind of in the Old Testament, there was this kind of thing of people wanted to be like God, but they kept failing and falling and falling to pieces in the process as they were going along. And it's a bit of a mystery. Why has God given us all these laws and yet we're completely incapable of living up to it? And when he's writing to the Colossians, he says this, this is the mystery that was hidden for ages and generations, but it's now revealed to his saints, to you guys. To you, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory, of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's basically saying this because Jesus lives in you. There is hope. Sometimes we forget that. We say, I am my history. I am my parenting, or I am whatever the latest mistake I made. Um, perhaps if you're in a job where you're constantly being performance managed, sometimes you feel like your worth just depends on your last appraisal. It can be devastating sometimes. But Paul says, no, here's the hope of glory. Here's the hope of being the person you're meant to be. It's Christ in you. Sit in that. Enjoy that. It gives you hope of becoming the person you're meant to be, no matter where you've gone. In that sense, for Christians, hope isn't just a possibility. It's not just the, the way we idly use the word hope. Oh, I hope that happens. And what we really mean is it might not, but I hope it will. Um, hope from a Christian perspective is a promise that we can become who we're meant to be. It's the unseen creative potential for change in your current situation. The seeds are there already. And hope to me quite often seems most relevant when I'm speaking to people who, who are depressed or they're dealing with someone who's depressed and they don't quite know how to wade through the treacle that depressed feels like. If you speak to people who are depressed, I sometimes say, give me a picture of what your depression is like. And they usually don't say, I feel sad. Quite often they say, I feel numb, I feel nothing, I feel empty. One person once described to them depression was like a big bell jar that fell down on top of them and they couldn't get out and the world couldn't get to them. It was like being isolated but still in a crowd of people. And um, when, when I was a teenager particularly, I can remember the moment where for some reason just a, a, a kind of depression fell on me really for a period of time. And, and quite often through my young adult life, I was revisited by what I called my black bubble and it was a moment where I felt deeply, deeply worthless and low and quite often started thinking about maybe it was time to end it, maybe it was time to harm myself. You know, those kind of thoughts would tempt me immensely. And, you know, I'm a psychologist, so I thought, well, I, as I got into my 20s, I thought I'd better treat myself. So I started reading all the self-help stuff I could. It was like DIY psychotherapy, all the books, how could I do it? And do you know what? It really helped. So it did actually lift me out of it. I learned lots of skills. And then uh, one night... Um, about 15 years ago, I'm sat uh, in my garden at home and i um, about to go to church that evening, Sunday afternoon, and I suddenly feel that familiar black bubble land on me, and it just hits me with despair and hopelessness. I'm like, when will this ever go away? And so I say to God, God, 
can you please just deliver me from this? What is this? Why does it keep coming? Please stop it. And so I go to church that night, and um, it's the usual thing, a bit of singing, preach, that I can't remember what was said. And I remember at the end of the talk, it was Mark Hutton, our friend, speaking. And uh, you know how Mark likes to get a response? That's one of his things. Um, and sometimes in order to get a response, he'll go with quite general calls to the audience. Um, so it'd be things like, you know, if you're here and you're, <laughs> uh, and you're still breathing, um, please come to the front because God wants to bless you. So, so I, I'm, I'm sat in row three, and I'm thinking to myself, um, no, I, I expect a much more specific call than that. I'm not answering that. No way. Um, and I feel the Holy Spirit say to me, no, Rog, this one's for you. So I get out of my seat, and I start wandering towards the front. And before anyone's even prayed for me, touched me, got anywhere near me, I suddenly hit the deck, just shaking violently. Um, and if I'm honest, forgive me if you suffer from seizures, at that point, I honestly thought I was having an epileptic fit. And the thought that was going through my head was, oh, this is what it's like to have an epileptic fit. I've always wondered. Um, but it wasn't that. And as I kind of shook, it was almost like some weight just lifted off my body. I almost felt it go. And then it was almost like from that point onwards, the black bubble hasn't returned. It's almost like the kind of discipline was there, learned these skills to avoid it. And then there was just this spiritual kick out that had to happen at the end just to get rid of whatever that was that was hanging around. And the thing I would always say to people who are feeling depressed, who are in the midst of that kind of thing, is just the message of hope is you never know what's going to happen next. You just never know what's around the corner. Do you know that God does answer the prayer, God help me? He does. I, I've prayed it in the last two weeks over different situations. And yes, sometimes you might have to wait. Sometimes you don't even have to wait that long. But God does answer that prayer. And that's the hope that we have in Jesus. You never know what's next. Hope, emotional wholeness, means believing in a better future. Gratitude, hope, endurance. Endurance, emotional wholeness makes suffering okay. Emotional wholeness makes suffering okay. Jesus said it, in this life you will have suffering. That is the way it is. If there's um, one message I think that underlies pretty much every time I speak in any context, whether it's churches, businesses, universities, whatever, it's always basically to make suffering okay, to say that this isn't wrong. Because I think sometimes we think being a, a, a good Christian means always feeling good, you know, always kind of rising above everything. Sometimes admittedly through gritted teeth, sometimes admittedly through ignoring a few key realities, um, but nevertheless, that's the way we sometimes feel. But the thing you've got to remember is that a life without sadness, a life without fear, a life without anger, that's not flourishing. That, that's called brain damage. That, that's what that is. You know, Th Those things are natural to us. They're important. And we may need to work out how do we express them, what should we do with them. But they are an important part of life. So endurance is the art of suffering usefully. It doesn't ask, why am I suffering? You ever noticed if you're going through a really hard time, it's about the worst question you can possibly ask because it's completely unanswerable. But it does ask, what can I gain or learn from my current suffering? This is hard. It's tough. I'm not going to deny that. But what can I gain? What can I learn? What are those tiny grains of gold, those tiny seeds of grace that might appear to me in the middle of some of this pain? Thank you, Philip.
thank you. <laughs> in psychological terms, we call it post-traumatic growth. A few years back, um, 20 years ago, really, um, I, I was um, training as a clinical psychologist, and I, I wrote my doctorate on trauma. So I was interviewing hundreds and hundreds of people who'd been through really painful events. And as I was doing that, I was also, because, you know, that's the kind of guy I am, uh, writing a commentary on the book of James in my spare time. Because I was just like, yeah, I've well, got these thousands of words to write. I'll just write a bit of stuff on the Bible as well as I go along. Um, and the opening of the book of James really sort of fixated with me because it was kind of the opposite of everything I was sort of reading in trauma. And it said this, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, endurance, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So I said to a friend of mine who was, uh, he was also studying psychology, I said, Alex, I'm beginning to wonder whether with trauma, could it be that some people, it doesn't make them worse, it actually makes them better. That it might not be immediately in the thing, but afterwards, as they start to reflect on it and make sense of it, it actually becomes something that builds their character, makes them better people. So my friend Alex went away, and um, he did all the research, all the background research, and we met in Waterstones um, in Lincoln, um, opposite HSBC Bank there. We sat in the cafe, and he had a pile of academic papers this big that he'd discovered um, and uh, literally overnight, me and Alex became the world experts in post-traumatic growth. <laughs> like we just like suddenly, not world, European experts more accurately. All this work had been done in the States. We took it and then we started presenting it all around Europe. It's like here was this idea in the Bible, which when we started looking at it scientifically, it was true. It worked. And that's what endurance is. Endurance is emotional wholeness, making suffering okay. We're not saved from our sufferings very often but we are saved in them. You know, when you're going through a hard time, sometimes we pray and God comes and he transforms the situation. I've seen that happen enough times. You know, God comes and acts and bang, the whole thing is great. Other times, God comes and transforms us in the situation. He comes and he gives us the strength. Ever been in one of those moments where you know that somebody somewhere is praying for you? It's one of the main reasons why we should pray for situations that are really tough and hard that are going on in the world and they feel really overwhelming and difficult and hard. But when I speak to, I mean, Christians really who are working in that kind of situation, they will say there are moments in those situations, a war zone, famine, uh, a huge flood, whatever it is, where I just have this sense of strength fills me up and I know that I'm being carried by the prayers of Christians elsewhere in the world. It's endurance. Endurance, making suffering okay. Gratitude, hope, endurance, kindness. Emotional wholeness means not being too cool to be kind. Not being too cool to be kind. Because kindness is love in action. Sometimes called compassion. Um, we decenter ourselves. We overcome self-consciousness and we step out towards others when we act in kindness. And you know, it's good for us to care for other people. It actually does us good. I don't think we should do it just because we're looking for the selfish reward in it, but it is good for us to selflessly care for others. Uh, again, Paul, in, in the Acts of the Apostles, he's, he's doing a talk, and he quotes Jesus, and he says something from Jesus that doesn't appear anywhere in the Gospels, so we just kind of have to trust him that Jesus said this. Um, and Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
And when you look at the psychological science diet, that comes up over and over and over again in all kinds of weird ways. There's one famous study done of uh, um, elderly people um, in a residential home, and half of them were given a plant and asked to water it themselves, and the others were given a plant and, asked and told that it would be watered for them. And what they found is that those who were asked to care for the plant um, after a month or so was so much better physically, psychologically, in all kinds of different ways. They were benefiting from the fact that they were caring for someone, that kind of activity. And again, when you look at the research, he says that one of the dangers of kindness is that you can get kindness fatigue. So you know how wanting to help everybody, everywhere, all the time, really is probably a bit of a recipe to burning out, ultimately. Um, there's a famous um, monk uh, called Thomas Merton who used to say, to want to help everyone all the time, everywhere, is to succumb to violence. He says, sooner or later, if you're being violent to yourself, or you're being violent to them because you want to help them. So when you look at the psychology, it basically says one of the best ways of being kind is to plan it, do it, perhaps anonymously, and then enjoy the results of what you've done. You have to do the complete cycle of kindness, which for some people means they have a kindness day. This week, I'm going to be kind on Friday. doesn't mean you're not kind the rest of the time, but you're going to do your special bit of kindness on Friday. That's the day when you sneak the chocolate onto your colleague's desk. Um, that's the day when you post the cinema tickets through the door of someone you want to bless. That's the day when you hand the chocolate to the person. You know, it's that, this is kindness day. That's, that's what we're going to do. And what that does is it allows us to enjoy the full orb of kindness, the whole thing that kindness involves. But kindness isn't just about acting. It's also about planning, and it's about savoring. It's about enjoying um, what's happening there. Um, even if sometimes that enjoyment is just in your heart, you know, you might not have told anybody what you've done, but you've enjoyed sitting with God going, wasn't that good? Um, a few years back, me and Mary Claire, my wife, were sat in a car park um, praying because we'd just come out of um, having a meal in a local pub, and as we'd been sat in the pub, there was a family at a table nearby, and they clearly weren't having a good time. We looked at the mum, and she just looked really depressed and oppressed and under the weather. And when we got in the car park, I said, I just really feel we need to pray for that family because I just felt so much pain. The dad was trying to manage kind of three boys, all kind of uh, under the age of six, kind of running around, causing chaos, and he was clearly struggling a bit. And um, it was September, and the, the next day, Mary Claire was into school, and she was introduced to her new class. And lo and behold, one of the boys we'd seen running around that table was in her class. And so we kept praying for him, thinking about him, what was he about? And um, we, uh, uh, what we discovered was that he's absolutely mad on Harry Potter. So he just loved all the films. It's when the films were kind of in their heyday. Absolutely loved them. And um, so, and Mary Claire was saying, are you going to go and see the film? He's like, no, I can't go and see the film because my mum and dad can't afford it. So um, me and Mary Claire, like two sort of spiritual ninjas one night, get some Odeon vouchers and sneak up to his door, post it to his door, you know, just saying, you know, to his name, uh, to get tickets for Harry Potter, tickets for his mum. So... Um, a couple of days later, he's in school, just full of joy and excitement that he's going to go and see Harry Potter that night. Um, and Mary Claire says, but I thought you said you couldn't afford it. He said, yeah, but someone posted some tickets to our door so we can go. She's like, that's brilliant. Who do you think did it? And he said, mm, I think it was angels. <laughs> and quite often that's what kindness is about. We don't need to tell anybody. We, we don't, don't necessarily know. I've told you now. Lost my reward. Oh, well, never mind. <laughs> But, but we don't necessarily need to tell the people we're being kind to why we're doing or what it's about. We just give it to them and we just see what happens after that. Um, kindness allows us to experience the full sense of 
two more minutes. I'm just on the last page. We're right there. Um, so there we go. Gratitude, hope, endurance, kindness. I think the worst way to hear what I'm saying is as a to-do list. Here's all the things you've got to do now. Just more things on your diary. But I think the best way to look at it is through the lens of curiosity and experiment. Um, Abby was doing the three-minute inspiration this morning. Uh, yes, you. And what's your name? What's your and Josh, Abby and Josh. And one of the things that Abby read was the first question that Jesus asks in John's gospel. And it's this. What are you seeking? What do you want? What are you after? It's a question that invites curiosity. It's a question that invites us to ask questions. And so I would say this. You might look at this and you think, where do I have the time to practice those kind of things? I would say that life is always giving you little breaks in which you can turn your mind in prayer towards God and do a bit of hope, a bit of love, a bit of endurance, a bit of gratitude all the time. It's just that we don't usually see them because we call them traffic jams and queues at the supermarket waiting for Windows 10 to load. You know, we, we kind of don't see them in that way, but I would say that every day in all kinds of different ways, God is inviting us to meet with him. And finally, here's the call that Jesus gives. There's one particular passage in Matthew's gospel that has sent people all over the world into all kinds of places to do all kinds of things because they believe this. And it's that call from Jesus that says this, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me from gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus calls us into peace. Very last story, 30 seconds long. It's a guy called Henry Nguyen, very, very famous for all, all the kind of work he did and the way in which he talked about spirituality. Great Christian man, died a few years back. He goes to visit Mother Teresa when she was alive. And he's got all these concerns about what he should do and how he should live and wants to ask all these advice. And he goes on for 10 minutes. And after a while, he's really embarrassed about the fact that he's bothered Mother Teresa with all these different things. And he says after that, she's then silent for a really awkward length of time. And then she simply says this. She says, well, in my view, if every day you spend an hour with Jesus and then don't do anything you know to be wrong, you'll probably be all right. God bless you. <laughs>